0: Hello, everybody. This is Pat O'Connor, president of Minor League Baseball, and you're listening to After Hours, hosted by my good friend, Brandon After.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome into another episode of After Hours, a Minor League Baseball podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm your host, Brandon Apter. This is a show where we dive into the business aspect of minor league baseball. I worked in the industry for nearly a decade and really, really enjoyed pretty much every minute of it. So I decided to make a podcast about it, and it's been a lot of fun talking to different executives from across the country with different teams and even in different sports. If this is your first time tuning in, you can find the podcast on any of your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Anchor.fm. And you can follow along on Twitter at After Hours Pod as well. So in this episode, I'm going to be joined by Adam Pohl. He is the play-by-play voice of the Bowie Baysox, AA affiliate of the Baltimore Orioles. He was actually my first boss in my first full-time job with the Frederick Keys from 2011 to 2013. So after my first two internships with Redding, And Wilmington. I worked in Frederick for three seasons and had the opportunity to work under Adam. Uh, It was really his first management experience too. So we learned a little bit from each other during that entire uh, tenure that we had with the Keys where attendance grew. We had a great team there and everything. So we'll talk about our time there. But normally with these shows, I have an agenda, a rundown for each of the guests. But since Adam and I have known each other for quite some time, we kind of went a little unscripted in this episode. So in addition to talking about our careers and our time that we spent together in Frederick, We also talked about our thoughts on pace of play as it continues to work its way through minor league baseball and probably someday into major league baseball. We touch on management and how being a manager early in your career might be a little bit tough and might be a rocky road, but it's one of those things where as you develop as a professional is very important to have, especially if you're looking to make your way up to the upper executive part of a front office. And we also talk about the broadcasting aspect of minor league baseball and how now in front offices a lot of times broadcasters are asked to do other things so you have to make yourself valuable if you're a broadcaster sometimes you'll be asked to do sales in some aspect or not so adam touches on how to make yourself valuable if you're a broadcaster and really want to make a name for yourself within a front office so without any further delay here's my conversation with adam pole the play-by-play voice of the Bowie bay
0: three nothing Bowie. top of the ninth runner at first two down drinks has got this side the runner goes, and here's the 3-2, Swinging a ground ball to third, Dosh has got it, here's the throw to first, and digging it out, Man City, it is over! And for the first time in franchise history, the Bay Sox have won the pennant! They are champions!
1: Back inside after hours, a minor league baseball podcast. And right now, I am very, very happy to be joined by my former first time boss and current play by play voice of the Bowie Bay Sox, Mr. Adam yes. Paul. Adam, thank you so much for taking some time out of your evening and Jewish New Year to join That's the show. That's right.
0: That is right. Thank you so much for having me. Man. It's a great time of year. Obviously, uh, overall, is uh, it's that idea time of year per se in minor league baseball. Which, to be honest, you know, with with my job in Bowie, uh I am not as involved in in the promotional, in the marketing idea element of, uh, uh, of the, the planning equation. end of
1: things. Yeah, and yeah. it's one
0: of the one of the things I really miss because you know, back in, in Way back in the early teens. Yeah. uh, I mean, this is 2011,
1: 2013 was when I was there. That was, what, first year was eight years ago. That's crazy.
0: It really is. It really is amazing. But to be honest, I mean, you know, when I look back at my career now being – Somebody that's you know getting old for the industry uh you know being being in the minor league baseball since two thousand three there's no doubt that um obviously I'm very proud of some of the broadcasting things that I've been able to do and that's been a, a, an apex for me as a broadcaster but 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 for for uh for my career to to what I did in Frederick and was able to lead uh or or be a part of with you guys was It was really the the highlight of of my career. I mean, it's pretty wild. You just don't see it where organizations that have been struggling with attendance did what we did, which is over a three year span, raise attendance by twenty percent. It was pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, and and it really stood out. And the funny thing is. happen in such weird ways. But, uh, uh, but I think that's something that we can talk about here.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, and it's one of those things too, where I think that was really the earlier years of where people really started like stealing ideas from each other, you know, going <laughs> yeah. to the promo, like I know the promo seminar has been going on for a while now, but that was really the time where like the extreme wacky zany stuff started to take over. And I think that helped us a lot there. And and yeah, that's uh, looking back at my career. You, you know, first two years of my uh, internships, I, I interned with Reading and Wilmington, two very good organizations, and was fortunate mm-hmm. enough to be able to work in Frederick for three years before working in more two more challenging markets. So you look back on times like that where you're able to raise attendance twenty percent uh, with the help of so many different people, um, and, and realize how again, fortunate that you were to have gone through that because Frederick is one of those markets where baseball has been there for such a long time. You do a lot of marketing, but there are a lot of people that come to games because it's something of a tradition. So before we start getting into your background, you know, you've been to plenty of minor league baseball par ballparks, like new and old. So oh yeah, how do yeah. you, how do you kind of factor in like when fans come to games, you know, the new ballparks have that buzz, but what is it sometimes, I guess, about the uh, older ballparks that have been in cities for a while that also, you know, you, you, again, like I said before, you don't necessarily need to do, like, the kitchen sink of marketing because it's been there for a while.
0: That's a great point. I mean, it's, you know, so I've been in the Eastern League now for a while since uh, the 2014 season, and uh, and with that being said, it's, it's a situation where the Easter League is a great mix, of uh, some of those awesome new ballparks like Hartford, even Akron is such a cool uh, new ballpark field to it, and many of the old ones. And I, I don't know, I love the old ones. You know, I, I, I love Portland, Maine, Havoc Field, and I think Reading might be the best ballpark, First Energy Stadium in all of minor like baseball right because it kind of pairs the old with the new yeah I, I love I love the aspect of celebrating your history and uh, and, and really showing that the baseball actually matters uh, and I think you can do that and also uh, add the fun side and the you know element of uh, of what you're doing to uh, entertain and uh, I, I think reading is probably number one in the minors that I've ever seen at at pulling that all together, at being a community meeting place, being a place people go before and after games per se. They get in there early, they keep them late and, uh, and and they just showcase their history and and you feel like you're at someplace special. Yeah. And I I think that that's what, what is really, really so cool. And um, you know, every, every team it's, it's hard to do that everywhere. I mean, where, where I have been, Um, Obviously, the Orioles uh, are are a brand that um, is so iconic to people of this area because they were so good from the mid-60s to the mid-80s and then had a run in the mid-90s. But it's been a long time, you know. I mean, the Orioles had had a little run there. Uh, Of course, uh, they they had a really good five-year run making the playoffs three years, but still – it, it, it's uh the the era of oil magic is yeah. feels like a long time was ago just gonna, yeah i
1: was just thinking about it 2011 the first year that i was in full-time minor league baseball you know first right. full time job <laughs> you know you get, you get there and hey there's manny machado jonathan scope just <laughs> on the team Uh get to win that title the first year and um i i think that's what's so great too about the miners really is, especially at the lower levels, you get to see those superstars just when they're starting to be special. And I spoke about it with somebody else in a previous episode, but they mentioned it, and I remember it. It's it's you just never know who you're going to see down there. So when it comes to sure. the ballparks, sure, there's that ballpark uh, attraction, but these days you have so many people that are out there uh you know process like so heavy into prospect research and and a fan of watching those young prospects that to this day really the minor leagues are are there are so many reasons that you can go to games you know whether you want the entertainment whether you want the baseball whether you want just a night out with the family it really hits all facets
0: it it does i think there is an advantage to the teams that have the hometown tie like you know, I'm of course, working in Bowie, Maryland. We're about 40 minutes away from Camden Yards, and next year we'll have – the future face per se of the franchise. It was Manny Machado or Adam Jones prior. And, and now it's going to be Adley Rushman, the number one pick uh, in, in this year's draft. And he'll, he'll be on the Bay Sox probably for the majority of next year. So that'll be an incredible thing. And, and now that I've been in the Orioles organization for 13 seasons, seven in Frederick and six in Bowie, you know, it, it, pretty, it is pretty remarkable to look back. I mean, it's such a historical thing. I think back to my first team and some of the guys that played for it. There's only one player from my first team that's still playing baseball. That's um, pretty
1: crazy, yeah. Pitcher,
0: David Hernandez. Uh, that, that, that wouldn't even be my I'm first I'm trying to think ever.
1: 2009. I, be... I was in Reading. It would be I don't think Kyle Drabeck is playing anymore. I think he was the Phillies' top prospect at the time. They had Dominic right, Brown that. there, too. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think there's anybody from the 2009 Reading team that's still in the big leagues. I'd have to check. I was in
0: the, I was in the Carolina League for nine years. So I, I was in Salem, Virginia. There are a ton like of those prior. guys
1: from like 2011 yeah. on that are.
0: But my big in 2005, my first year of full-season affiliated baseball, I had both Ben Zobrist and Hunter Pence on my team yeah. as, as the advanced day affiliate of the Astros. It's incredible watching their careers go through. I feel like so. we're
1: just one-upping each other here, but you know my <laughs> yeah, my, my, my 2010 so much... year with the Royals had Eric Hosmer, Will Myers, Salvador I... Perez, and Mike Moustakis. What do you got next?
0: Well, yeah, those teams were unbelievable. Yeah, they sucked the, in uh... the
1: minors, though, together. They weren't very good.
0: isn't that amazing i mean it does show baseball and how important the aspect of uh, baseball being truly uh, a team sport i mean if if you've got a terrible bullpen you're not going to win many games uh wilmington is such a tough hitters park and i remember mike Mustakis when he played there he was a dominant player on the road but he basically hit 190 in wilmington He just could not hit at home yeah that's like uh
1: players that are in organizations that have uh teams in the Florida State League, like those right? parks are hard to hit home runs in. So when you see it, it's almost just like, oh, that this guy might be special.
0: <laughs> exactly. No doubt about it. So I think, you know, the baseball is a big aspect or, or a bigger aspect of it sometimes than, than what we like to play up. But um and, and that's been a frustration of mine in working in minor league baseball because, you know, I got into this for the baseball, uh, for the baseball, and then you get into it, and it's like, hey, we need to, we need you to, uh, to try to focus and sell things that are anything but the baseball. So, yeah, so that you know that that that's a frustrating aspect, and that's and- really
1: spilling over to uh, professional leagues now too. You see in Major League Baseball, uh, even the NBA. When you go to NBA games, it's very different, even from like four or five years ago. Like, of course, people are there to watch the team, but the entertainment right. aspect of it has really gone up like two, three notches, probably yeah, more notches. I, th- I think that.
0: minor league baseball, especially, you know, in the 2000s, um, it, it, it's amazing how much these major league sports have taken for the minor league baseball experience. And the moment that, that hit me was a few years ago, the Yankees were finally having a down season. And They did a Derek Jeter bobblehead, and I heard John Sterling uh, doing an ad for the Yankees as, as I was in the New York area around this time of year, and he said, New York Yankees baseball, it's more than just a game. I could not believe it, because the reality is when I got into minor league baseball, every minor league team's motto was, you know, I was the Salem Avalanche once again. And the, I was with the Burlington Indians before that uh, in rookie ball, and it was – you know, Burlington Indians baseball, more than just a game, you know? Yeah. And then all of a sudden it changed about 10 years ago to Wilmington Blue Rocks baseball. It's affordable family fun, you know? And I that, think that's they, kind of they, they I,
1: melded it into affordable fun ability. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So mm-hmm.
0: everybody at everybody Miami baseball is, is something about affordable family fun. But I'm like, damn, if the New York Yankees are more than just a game, who the hell is just the game? <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Jeez, what God. exactly is the game of baseball these days? <laughs> what is it?
0: Well, you know it's funny because I the, the more I, I watch the NFL, I mean, where it's just it's it's a and of course I'm a Redskins fan, which is a disaster. But <laughs> the the more I watch the NFL, it's it's a really tough game to watch because. When a big moment happens, all you do is look for the flag, right? Yeah, you're like, "Where's the penalty? Oh, no penalty! Great!" You know, I mean, in baseball, it, it, it just is such a true game, and uh, I think for for the uber sports fan like I am, and really like you know in you, yourself as well, that you know, I, I think for the more casual fan, football is great because it's a sport that just it's only one day a week. Yeah. But you, know? like yeah. you don't really have to take much time. Baseball, it's every night and there's so much nuance to it. And, uh, you know, um, you know, it's like the fine wine of sports, yeah. uh, where, where football is like the, uh, you know, malt liquor of sports. But, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I, I mean, it's it, all liquor that for, might
1: be a little too classy for some of the cities in the NFL, though, <laughs>
0: that's true. including
1: my that's own, true. perhaps.
0: <laughs> I just, I, I just think that, uh, you know, um, I have some thoughts about major league baseball and, and, you know, what needs to change. And I don't really think it's a lot. I mean, I just think they got to find a way to make games two hours and 40 minutes. Yeah. Game. I was going to say
1: what, one, one of the big they gotta things, team the
0: baseball down, you know, I and mean, it's not, it's not that hard.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say one of the big things that, at least, when the pace of play aspect of things came into minor league baseball, I know for me, a lot of people were just like, "Well, this is not gonna work. Like, people are not gonna like this. It's gonna be difficult for the people working in marketing having to, you know, work within a a two minute period to to get on and off the field with twenty seconds so the batter can come up. Like, it just seemed like an overwhelming amount of things for. It's something that at the time didn't seem like like a huge deal, you know, cutting the game down. Because when you work in baseball for so long, like the games just kind of meld together unless it goes into like (laughs) extra innings. So looking back on it now, I think we're getting to a point in minor or major league baseball where we're probably maybe two or three years away from all of the rules from minor league baseball, the pitch clocks and everything being instituted in major league baseball.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think on the major league side, I think what you're going to start seeing, I think you're already seeing it, but you know how when you watch a soccer game, there's just all these ads that are popping up on the screen during the game, you know, Mm -hmm. in the top corner and such. I think you're going to see more of that in major league baseball. They're going to have to minimize, as you said, breaks in between innings um you know they're they're starting to try to manipulate the game as far as rules uh possibly with you know these how many pitchers uh pitching changes when you can make these changes and these guys have to face how many mound visits i just think that the mound visits but the biggest thing is that pitch clock i mean uh, the bay Sox this year uh, my team uh played the shortest games in the league that had the average shortest game. So I didn't look through, but I wouldn't be surprised if we played the shortest games in all of pro baseball this year, mm-hmm. which every, uh, means that I'm the, we were the envy of, of all the baseball games. Yeah. But our average game was two and a half hours this year. And, and I, I just think that, you know, a major league baseball game, the average, it's, it's creeping up three hours and five minutes to three hours and ten minutes. Yeah. That's the average game. I
1: and mean, it's crazy I, because I, when you look at like NFL games, that's how long you're watching NFL games for.
0: Correct. And the problem is that the playoffs are more... So you get these playoff games that start at eight o'clock and they last four hours. Yeah. And, and there's just no reason. I mean, I, that should ever happen, you know. And I mean, you look back at playoff games, you know, from like the 1966 World Series when the Orioles uh, upset the Dodgers, and it was a super pitcher series. And these games are all like right around two hours. You know, I mean, I'm not saying it's got to be a two hour game, but, but you man. know, I do some college basketball. That's one of the great aspects of college basketball is that you know, as a you know that it's going to be a two hour game you know right. I mean, it might be 210 but you kind of know uh, and people gravitating towards soccer uh you know in a, in a way and that's one aspect of soccer as well it's kind of you know how long the game's going to be so yeah. I, I think baseball you know you know how it is i mean a two and a half hour baseball game feels right yeah and a three hour baseball game feels like a well long yeah i was game. gonna say
1: like where where I live in Atlanta now, the games because of traffic start at seven thirty so you're you're getting oh, wow. like sixth yeah. or seventh inning, and it's ten o'clock already. You know you're right. shooting post game exactly. fireworks off on Friday at like eleven fifteen eleven thirty, and that's normal so right yeah i i again i I think a lot of people that are baseball purists. And really like the game just the way it is, not just keep adding things to make it shorter and stuff like that. I think they need to go to a minor league game and realize that it's really not that much of like you don't like after you see a few games you don't even notice it.
0: Correct. Yeah. Every pitch in a double or triple A baseball game is not like the old Dick Clark countdown to New Year's. Yeah. You know, it's not like, <laughs> "Will he get the pitch off? Four, three.
1: Although you know, on Camp oh Day God, you might I'm have doing, kids you know. counting it down. I've had that before <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly uh, you know I, uh, there are funny stories of course about it like, uh, we had Kevin Gosman now with the Braves Gosman was rehabbing and uh, <laughs> I don't think
1: he's with the Braves anymore is he isn't <laughs> is he, he not else? did
0: they get rid of him well he he you know he had two men on. And two men down, first inning of a rehab game, and the count was three and two, and he, you know, he didn't know what this clock meant, and uh, and it was yeah, ben he's Shore.
1: on the Reds now.
0: Okay, oh, he's on the Reds. Good call. And ball So he walked the bases loaded with a pitch clock violation. Yeah. And then you start thinking, because it was like a three-minute argument over should a big league rehabber be included in the minor league quirky rules. Right. And I'm sitting there going, boy, isn't the pitch clock supposed to shorten the game? We're having a three-minute uh, you know, <laughs> argument inside the game about the violation. He got out of the inning, but it was just so funny. So funny, yeah. like he was like looking like, What did I do? He thought he balked. I mean, it was like, It was like this whole thing. So, uh, but, but overall, like you said, these players get used to it, and uh, it, it, it's not,
1: and I think really fans absurd, get used to it too. Agree. Again, like when it was first instituted, uh, a lot of people were just like, Well, baseball isn't broken, so why fix it? But it's like, just like, Well, if you can shave. 10 minutes off of a game without people noticing why not do it especially in a you know in a in a world now where the attention spans are are getting uh less and less by the year pretty much
0: agreed agreed and i think that's basically what it is you know about 10 minutes a game so yeah um, i read the other know, day i don't
1: know if you saw this in the g league they're they're talking about pace of play now in basketball which is a little crazy because those games yeah. are between like an hour and 50 minutes and like maybe two <laughs> hours and 10 minutes. Like if we're talking so over time with the free throws. Yeah. So pretty much all what they're experimenting is all free throws or all fouls will be worth one free throw shot, but that shot will be worth, you know, if he's fouled behind the arc, that one shot will be worth three points.
0: Got you. Okay. So I, I think they're I looking didn't. to
1: shave like, five to seven or six to eight minutes and if that's like a g-league thing because i don't like i know the g-league is growing but i don't think it's growing to the point where you have like sellout arenas even in like the bigger markets per se so i don't think it's going to be like a huge deal for g-league markets but that's something that i don't really see ever reaching the nba because it's just i just it think it removes it's... a whole skill aspect of the game
0: agreed it just seems unnecessary the other thing is that like that gives you a break as a player you know i mean like in basketball your physical conditioning is such an important aspect of the game that bears out immediately you know and uh, i don't know i mean that seems like you're just you're just uh, trying to keep play obviously at all times continuous which i don't know it just seems unneeded in basketball but
1: yeah yeah well that <laughs> Never expected to get into a, a talk about pace of play, but you know it speed is a golf. big
0: speed golf is coming.
1: Yeah, <laughs> well they <laughs> need it. They need it. I can't watch golf as it is. Maybe we should just change it to Top Golf. I don't know if you've been to one of those That's Top right. Golf places, but I have not. I have let's not. just change it to that. Um, but yeah, when, when we talk about stuff like pace of play, and then we go back to like when you started in two thousand and three, mm-hmm. and even like when I started in two thousand nine, that stuff didn't even like cross our minds about things that would happen. Now, uh, when it comes to sports, working in sports in general, I know, you like I mentioned at the beginning of most episodes, that a lot of people have different paths to where they work. (laughs) You know, you work in a lot of different places, you probably move around a lot, um, but these days it, it seems a lot of people get into sport management and then go from there, but... You are one of the cases that I'm just like, oh, you know, not everybody goes to college for sports and then goes uh, gets into sports. You majored in music and then kind of went from there. So, how did that all start with you in terms of like? I know you were a lifetime baseball fan, but when you're majoring in music, what, what, like, when were you first just like, you know, I think I'm going to try this out?
0: It's a great question. I, I mean, and, and I only ask time, the they, good ones. That's right. You know, a lot of people think like, like, how did that happen? You know, but, but, but it wasn't even really that I fell into it per se. It, like w- when I was uh, looking at colleges, I was very interested in broadcasting and uh, doing exactly what I'm doing now, play by play broadcasting. And I was very interested, um, you know, and I was a really I was a good trumpet player, you know, and and music is in my family. So, um, so basically I I was, I, I mean, I wasn't like a great trumpet player, but I, I was, if I was an athlete, I would have been a good division one. If you know anything about trumpet
1: trumpet egos, you can never say you're anything less than great. Otherwise you're probably not a really a trumpet player.
0: (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, so, what ends up happening is I, I got to do something that all college athletes would have loved to do in, in essence. When you, I was a, a scholarshiped uh, person, but not a full scholarship, but I got a scholarship to play trumpet at uh, the University of North Carolina, and uh, and when I uh, went to Chapel Hill, I just knew that to keep my scholarship even though i was interested in other things i had to stay a music major it's almost like if you were a basketball player and you got a scholarship and you're majoring in basketball but then you realize you're not going to make the nba and uh, so you're like okay well what else am i going to do but i'm i still got to stay a basketball major like you know i gotta keep my scholarship yeah i mean the reality of it though was i love music it's not like I mean, it was uh, one of the defining things I've ever done in my entire life. Uh, yeah. Uh, still, some of my best. Yeah, I mean, I was in the, the marching
1: band for seven years three in high school, four in college, and then I played trumpet right. since third grade. It's a part of your life, and I know yeah, it you, really is you have that i I always found it similar to where you know you go to college or high school or even when you're in the band, you have like a group of friends already pre set up for you, which is very nice, and I compare that to minor <laughs> league baseball too because you go into a front office and you're kind of put into a pre-selected group of friends slash family, depending on who you love and hate. There's
0: no doubt about it because you're going to spend so much time with these people. I mean, when I I lived in the dorm my freshman year at Carolina in Chapel Hill that was furthest from anything. It's called Hinton James. And Hinton James uh, was the first ever Carolina student. And he walked all the way from Wilmington, North Carolina to take classes. That's like a two and a half hour drive. (laughs) He walked all the way from Wilmington, North Carolina to Chapel Hill to take classes. So they named the furthest dorm from anything Hidden James because you're taking it's almost like you've got to take his walk every day to try to get to class. So for me, I, you know, my classes were a 20 to 25 minute walk away, you know, from my dorm. And um maybe I mean maybe it was like 15 to 25 minutes, but it doesn't matter. I and mean, right. the, the reality is that with all the different ensembles I was playing in and such, like my other sweet mates They would be home all day after their classes, and they'd have to, you know, like stop fooling around and study. And for me, I I was one of those quasi athlete types. In that, I would leave at eight a.m. and I'd get back to my dorm room at nine or ten, and then it was time to do homework. I mean, my days were so full, you know, with activities. So, so in essence, I was a music major at Carolina, and uh, I didn't, I wasn't going to be a professional musician. And I didn't want to be a teacher for a living. I mean, I was kind of on the high school band director path, and I didn't want to do that. And I mean, you know, there's I, I I think I would have really loved it, but you understand what I'm saying. So when I was after my junior year, I I really focused on okay, like if I'm gonna do this, if I'm gonna try to call games for a living, how in the heck do I do this? And I, I was able to get a summer internship in the Coastal Plain League, uh, the Coastal Plains League, which is uh, in uh, Virginia, Southern Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. You know, I was the very first ever broadcaster for the team in Ashboro, not Asheville, Ashboro, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. They're still called the Ashboro Copperheads, and, um, and and that was an incredible, uh, really, really cool experience. I was there for two summers. And uh, and then I got an internship with the Tar Heel Sports Network and I got to work with, uh, you know, with everybody there. Um, so um, and I kind of became like the next person in the rung of generationally that was able to do stuff. So I got my foot in the door and it led to me getting my first ever job in minor league baseball in Burlington, North Carolina. Uh, they're called the Burlington Royals now, but in the Appalachian league with the Burlington Indians in 2003. And then two years later, I got my first full-time job uh, like we talked about earlier mm-hmm. uh, with Hunter Pence and Ben Zobrist in Salem, Virginia, with the at that time Astros affiliate, the Salem avalanche. So for me, it was, I mean, golly, uh, looking back to those times, it's pretty amazing. I was able to, you know, kind of carve this career out Uh, And I was it it, it took me a long time, Brandon, to really understand what I had to do to make it a career, because um, we talked about it before we started this podcast. But, you know, there's so many people that get into this industry right out of college. And for me, being once again, a music major, I mean, I kind of learned everything just from my internships and, and from experience And it it really took me until my time in Frederick. I started in Frederick in 2007 Mm -hmm. to really buckle down and realize what being a successful minor league executive meant, not just a broadcaster and a nice guy and a fun guy to be around. (laughs) An occasionally
1: good basketball player.
0: Uh, Yeah, well, I I wouldn't go that far. Yeah, (laughs) but uh, I mean, my my goodness, you know, being five foot uh, six and a half and just Shooting like fifteen percent from three, yeah. um, but hey, every once in a while I'll knock one down.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, one of the other things that you and I were talking about a little bit before we recorded is, you know, early early on in my career, uh, mm-hmm. two thousand ten. When I was with Wilmington, one of my right. positions, one of my jobs was to manage a team of college interns. Now, I was with you uh, and Frederick. That group of college interns was about, what, 11 or 12 of them, I believe. But right. in, in mm-hmm. Wilmington, it was like 30 to 35. So oh. the then GM uh, with, with the Blue Rocks, uh, Chris Kempel, great guy, mm-hmm. really like him, uh, just always was just like, yeah, you can never have enough interns. So one week we'd have <laughs> like... Yeah, it was a Monday, Tuesday night where there would be way too many interns in the tunnels down there. And I guess it kind of threw me in the fire when it came to managing people and learning how to deal with different personalities. And then I moved on to Frederick and and kind of tried to do that a little more, felt a little comfortable in my own shoes. Uh, And that continued in Gwinnett and, and Port Charlotte when I was there to the point where you know you you get your you get to the point where you're the authoritative figure you can't be the friend you know even though it's a fun uh atmosphere to work in you know that was one of the biggest learning experiences for me as how to you know uh act as a manager when you're around the same age of the people that you're working at so my question to you is when you started managing, what were some mm-hmm. of the early challenges that you faced? And now, you know, years after that, how, how do you look back and how did it help you grow?
0: You know, I, I, I always love being a leader. You know, I kind of have that kind of personality. Um where I enjoy taking that role on and when you're a broadcaster in minor league baseball um, you don't really you're not really the leader of much you know to be honest like when you're around the team you're kind of a fly on the wall and you just don't want to stir anything up you, you know you don't want to ruffle anyone's feathers like um, you want to build good relationships with people and have them trust you and such but you're you are not a leader you know when you're on that bus on the road trip you, you know like like uh, uh, you know you're you're not like the guy that's the cleanup or the or, or the manager of the team right? right in in the same regard um you know broadcasters in minor league baseball are generally some of the uh least important financial people as far as driving business you know it's kind of like hey, yeah. you call the games, make yourself valuable uh, and, and go do it you know kind of thing you're not like one of the leaders uh in that regard uh, there's a few people that have ascended to. To, to do what I was able to do in Frederick one of them is in my league now in Erie is the AGM of Erie the broadcaster Greg Gania but in essence um, I you know I I was kind of the next man up In in Frederick, things weren't going very well as far as uh, the attendance was considered. It was a weird situation in which the two long-term people that had run marketing both left over a span of three to four months. And they hired somebody who's had a very good career in professional uh, sports and marketing, but they probably weren't ready to take on the role of leading the marketing department of minor league team at that time. Uh, They'd probably be very good at it right now. Um, So I realized... Uh, you know, at the end of the 2010 season that I was probably going to get asked by my, you know, our our general manager, Dave Zidalis, who's been such an important person to me in my career in so many different ways, that I was going to get asked by Dave if I had any ideas and if I wanted to take this on. And so when Dave actually came to me and asked me, I was completely ready. (laughs) And, And that was the first big step as far as that in my career. And and one of the aspects of being ready for that was in hiring the kind of people that we're going to bring in and and the different things that we were going to do. And so I think in leadership, you know, I'm kind of a goofy, fun guy, um, off the wall, keep it loose, keep, you know, so that can be tricky as far as uh, when you need to reprimand somebody or something. Mm -hmm. But when you bring in good people, I mean, look, minor league baseball, all these things we work so hard. If you bring in people that have the passion and drive for it, they can have very different personalities and they're going to do extremely well. And that's what we had. I mean, when I look back, You know, yourself and Paul Danilo were both just, you know, such fun kind of quirky personalities, a lot (laughs) like myself, to be honest. Uh, And then somebody like Bridget McCabe, who now works with the San Diego Padres, who was a very quiet, shy person. But like, I mean, she just she just got the nuts and bolts done. And she was always there. for you. She knew what she she was doing. She knew exactly what she was doing and she held it down, you know, and she would crack the whip. I mean, I, sometimes I felt that like Bridget was right. I was like, you know, Bridget would be like, Adam, what are you doing? You know, I'm like, oh, damn. You know <laughs> just like, wait, are
1: you straight. my boss?
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, needed that. I needed that big time. Yeah. So, you know, it's it, it just worked out perfectly. And the reality of it was that I think that we were in a position um, uh, in Frederick uh, where we were all kind of new at it. But in the same, so that made it a lot of fun because we were trying a lot of new ideas, Mm -hmm. and um, and you know what, it didn't really work right at the beginning. If you remember, I mean, like the first month was horrible in April of 2011. But we stuck with it. That was also
1: the year that we were potentially getting bought by an Atlantic League team. Oh Oh my God. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, that was all, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother show (laughs) that that we had to do run a political campaign to try to save our team. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was unbelievable, but the reality of it was that um, with, with the keys, it worked. And one of the main things in management uh, that I tried to implement really under the radar was to try to compliment uh, the employees in my department in front of everybody when they had successes and fortunately we, we had a lot of successes. Yeah, yeah, And then when, and when things didn't go well, or if something went wrong, um, if it was somebody else's fault, you know, or one of the, one of the employees faults per se, I would talk to them one-on-one. And mm-hmm. I think that that, that, you know, built a rapport and it built a trust that we were all in it together. Um, uh, and um yeah it was it really was a unique time and uh, an incredible run that that we had it really clicked the funny thing is that you know the keys won the championship in 2011 it really clicked in 12 and then even took a major step yeah. forward in 2013 and the reality of it is that you know my goal was to increase every day of the week's attendance by 15% But that's not what happened at all. I mean, Monday through Fridays barely rose at all, but Saturdays, uh, Saturdays were up fifty percent, and Sundays more than doubled at Keys Games in the three years that we pulled this. Yeah, and I think it's also
1: worth mentioning too that I think like we were among like the. I don't know if it was the first or not because I didn't do a whole lot of research, but um, you know, we had that reading program. That was really the trademark of what a lot of people did. A lot of different organizations did, especially around that time in the Mm -hmm. mid to late two thousands, early 2010s. Um, But the concept that we had to, take that and and use it as a fitness initiative really, really went well. And I think that took (laughs) off. And that's something that, at least for me, that I took to organizations that I worked with in the future that worked because that really, especially nowadays, is is much more of a focus worldwide, especially with kids, uh, is, is fitness rather. I mean, reading is very important, but everybody and their moms are doing reading programs.
0: Exactly. Yeah, the, it was getting to be a bit outdated. You know, the keys don't even do the reading program anymore, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, well, boxing such up a...
1: those bookmarks and packets were not the most fun times in the entire <laughs> I world. I
0: know, but you know, when you're, you're, when you're putting so much effort into something, and, uh, and when I mean effort, I just mean work hours. You know, it, it just was an unbelievable undertaking, and it really the juice. You know, at, at that time it was starting to not be worth the squeeze. Yeah. So so the the uh, you know kind of play sixty ish type of program that we started in Frederick was was very successful, and then we just um, you know we we just we looked at marketing in a different way. I mean, uh, but almost in minor league baseball, I think one of the big mistakes in minor league baseball is everybody is just so focused on the event as the hook. You know, it's like I am this restaurant and now I'm serving this new thing on the menu tonight. And that's going to bring everybody to my restaurant. Uh-huh. And the one thing that we did so well in Frederick, is that, um, I, you know, I read an article in 2010 about how many pocket schedules Myrtle Beach put out in the community, and it was five to six hundred thousand. And I realized that that year we had put out 50,000 pocket schedules in Frederick
1: no it was more and than obviously that. that it was more yeah, well, that. No,
0: but that was before oh, oh yeah that's right and and we jumped it up to between two and three hundred thousand yeah. it's just what we did with everything brandon you were more a part of the appearances you know we went from like 60 or 70 appearances a year to so like 200 yeah you mm-hmm. know in the community and and then and, and people could say well well how much did Uh, Brandon going to that fair on a Saturday, you know, and then he didn't work Monday until noon, right? How much did uh, that help? How can you quantify that? Well, I mean, we just went by the ethos that everything mattered, you know? Mm -hmm. And and when it all added up, you know, doing three times as many appearances, five times as many pocket schedules, uh, doing probably – 10 to 20 times as much advertising because the keys had almost eliminated to all advertising So all of a sudden we were in the paper, you know, on the front of the sports section, every, you know, 30, 40 times a year, we were on all the major radio stations and we were, you know, we were just everywhere. And all of a sudden we, the data really showed that this approach was working because, you know, the weekends was where we saw the jump, but we also took data on all the zip codes. Yeah. In which people came to the games, and it was something like you know our top fifty zip codes. It was something like forty-seven or forty-eight of them we saw arise. You know, yeah, in and that was
1: a, that was around the time where we got zip codes by like people's credit cards. Correct. You know, now exactly. it's just like a digital age where you can get the zip code by retargeting and all of that stuff. Like it's changed so much over the years.
0: But data means so much, you know, and we were able to learn. A lot about our product uh, because of it. You know, we were able to learn that, you know, that what we were doing, we were bringing more people from a county, like a city 45 minutes away, like Westminster, Maryland. And we were also bringing the same percentage increase of people from Frederick. It was just, you know, obviously more people were coming from Frederick, but, but our marketing was working and but then once again, that it was almost all geared towards the weekends in which our growth happened. So it it was, it was very interesting. It was almost like, you know, you plan and you hope for it to grow one way and then it starts growing. Not exactly how you thought, but you're like, okay, let's keep doing this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I I remember 2011 was was one of the years before I started emceeing, you know, you and Tim Murray who's now who now right. has his own show on NBC Sports. Um <laughs> yes. which is which is pretty crazy. Uh we're doing double duty, you know, you were broadcasting for a couple innings, you were emceeing, and and you were also the director of marketing, you know, it tells how many hats that you make, but uh, or that you wear. Sorry, hats that you make. That <laughs> That's my little Um but, but when it comes to the broadcasting side of things, yeah. I mean, when when people think about baseball, you think about you know, legendary play-by-play broadcasters. You think about listening to the game on the radio. I know for me, when I listen to Phillies games, absolutely love tuning in on the radio. I like the TV crew, but the radio crew is better. Um, so especially when you grow up listening to baseball, you you, you get that, you know, I don't even know how to explain it. It's that vibe and, and that feeling you get when you listen to the game that just has a calmness to it and everything. But yeah. broadcasting yeah. is really one of the hardest parts of baseball to, to break into. Yeah, sports is, is hard to break into in general especially uh, starting off when you're just starting to network and stuff like that. But broadcasting really is one of those tough ones to, to get into. So what, what would you say to, to people that are looking to get into broadcasting this day in baseball? I know one of the things that we talked about a little earlier is make yourself valuable. You're, not, you're probably just not going to be just the broadcaster unless you're in a really big market. So what else uh, can they do to make themselves marketable?
0: You know, it's interesting. I think that my path, that the way that I took to get into the minor leagues was a rare one when I did it. But it is now a very common one, which is to broadcast in these college summer leagues. Uh, For me, it was the Coastal Plains League. uh, But there's a great league in Minnesota. I mean, there are leagues all over the place, really. But I know there's called the North Woods League in Wisconsin, and Minnesota. The Cape Cod League is the most famous. Uh, I, I hired a broadcaster, Tony Godfrey, when I was in the Keys that had done a summer in the in the Alaska League. So, really, getting experience you know at the collegiate level is, uh, is, is so important. And then it's building relationships, reaching out to people. Um, you you know, I mean, uh, to to get started, a lot of what people want is somebody that is going to be good on air. Uh, that is young, that probably lives near the area that they are. I'll tell you about these part time jobs in the minors, these number two positions. And, um, you know, because it's like, well, this guy can live at home. He can make this, you know, he can make this salary work. Yeah. I mean, th- these are the kinds of things that that are thought about. Um, But I I just, I I really believe that um, all in all, um, the experience of just doing games is what matters. When I, I'll never forget, uh, this this shows my age here, but my my two interning years were 2001 and 2002. And in 01, Asheboro, North Carolina, that I mentioned earlier, was an hour from Chapel Hill. So I did a game that was, uh, a week earlier, and I had gotten the tape from the radio station. I had a cassette player in my car, and I broadcast the game that night. But I was so excited to listen to this game because it was so exciting. And you know, my team Ashford won right at the end. And you know, I, I really thought I killed it. You know, mm-hmm. and part part of of anything in life is being here on the worst critic but I was driving home and going to a big party that I was excited to go to. You know, it was like, I'm, I'm riding high. Yeah. I put that tape in my, in my cassette player. And my, I mean, it took 30 seconds to a minute. My heart sunk. I mean, I was like, I suck. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like I'm like, I don't sound like uh, the broadcasters that I grew up listening to on the Reels Radio Network. So I, uh, I, uh, for me, it was, it was humbling. It took me you know, until my third or fourth summer of doing it, probably a few hundred games until I, I started gaining a lot of confidence in myself and, and thinking, boy, I, I, you know, I can do this. And, um, so, so that's the most important thing yeah. is to get innings under your belt and then start building, um, relationships because the hardest thing about being a number one broadcaster, in the minor leagues, and what I mean by that is is a lead broadcaster for a team is that that position is usually hired by the general manager, and most general managers are—they're not broadcasters. You know, they are not hiring by listening to like eighty tapes and, <laughs> and you know cutting it down. You know, I mean, so, you, so they're going to be hiring somebody that they, you know, you know somebody you, you get—you're able to get on a short list due to your experience or due to, you know, the connections you have. And, uh, and then you gotta, you gotta win it when you're in the interview process. So, you know, for me, it's been a great career. Um, it's, it's been one that I kind of built out of nothing. Mm -hmm. And I, I think just another thing would be that I would be an example of somebody that could do this from scratch. So,
1: um, the the last thing that I have for you before I let you go here on the Sunday night now after ten PM Eastern time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, throughout the years I, I think you've probably gotten a lot of comments on it. I've always enjoyed listening to it, but I I, yeah. I guess how would you how you would go about it is you have sort of a unique um broadcast delivery. So <laughs> I do. Um I do. I, I'm just curious as to, to where that started for you and and how I guess how you roll with it.
0: You know, when I was listening, I when I was in Salem, I, uh, I I would listen sometimes to Lynchburg's broadcast on the radio because it was only an hour away, and I could hear the games. John Schaefer was a broadcaster. He, he rose to broadcasting at Lehigh Valley for years, and actually just got out of high league baseball about a year ago. And I would always think, damn. John Schaefer sounds a lot like Harry Callis, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and John grew up, even though Lynchburg was a Pirates affiliate at the time, John grew up a big Phillies fan. Well, I grew up a big Orioles fan and I, you know, I, I, I broadcast at a similar tempo and pacing to my favorite broadcaster ever, John Miller, who's now the, the voice of the San Francisco Giants. And obviously it's a very, it's kind of a different listen. You know, it's It it's seems abnormal to some, but, but really it's all based on something that you mentioned earlier, Brandon, which is um, to use kind of the range of your voice and also uh, the tempo, the pattern, also even just the uh, uh the decimals of you know the the range as far as how how quiet or how loud you are right um to you know to bring uh, a real calming effect to uh to the to the you know down parts of the game uh, but kind of a very smooth listen to it to then a really exciting um, explosion per se mm-hmm. when the big moments happen yeah. I, I, I just I thought that's the way I, I think that uh, the majority of baseball broadcasts I listen to are just too straight down the middle um, there's just not much of a, a variance between you know the regular parts of the game and the big parts and there, there's so many things that over the years you learn and grow to be your own and such And uh, but you know the Chuck Thompson when I was a kid, was an real great broadcaster, and then uh, and then of course Joe Angel that who just retired. I mean, th- those are the kinds of guys that, that I grew up listening to. I, you know, t- to be honest, I, mean, I I sound like an Orioles broadcaster because I I've grown up listening to in essence three generations of orioles baseball mm-hmm. um because ernie Harmel, the great tigers broadcaster was the first voice of the orioles and then in 1960 he left and chuck thompson was then the voice in the 60s and 70s and right. john miller in effect was the voice in the 80s and 90s and and joe angel has really been the voice of the 2000s and 20 teens so uh retiring here prior to this year so that you know that those are the main guys right. but for me um uh it is different I, people always comment a lot of times you know i realize when they're telling me you know, you know you give this it's not they're not doing that in a positive way they're basically telling me that you're weird or like i don't really like it <laughs> you know yeah um i remember last year you know I, doing mount games and such and, and my basketball broadcasts even sound a little bit different but yeah in a way because they don't sound you know like they, they don't sound a lot like my baseball well you have to yeah
1: it, it's a little quicker
0: yeah, 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 and and um, and, and you know, one of the guys uh, that's a, a big voice locally, he's like, "You get really excited during your calls," and I was like, you know. That, that sounds like something that would be nice, but like the way he was looking when he said it whatever, I was kind of like, oh, he's basically trying to tell me like he thinks I suck. But, but, uh, but I, you know, it, it's weird because it is more of an old-timey feel. I really don't sound like most of these new broadcasters. If you turn on YouTube and you listen to a Harry Carey call an ending in, in the 1950s, I sound a lot more like that that <laughs> uh, I sound you know and yeah. I really believe in that. I mean you know I, I just I, I sound like kind of an old-time radio broadcaster and, uh, and and you know I think to be honest that that's hurt my career in some regards but uh, but it's something that that I believe in so
1: right yeah, well, you got to run with what you believe in in that gut. Uh, not saying That's that right. you have a gut or anything. I haven't seen <laughs> oh, you, yeah, in you in won. a few years. I do, I
0: do. <laughs> All season, time time to lower the carbs, you know, stay away from some sugars here for a little bit. Because yeah. uh, my wife is is starting to kind of look at me as uh, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Adam, we need to we need you to start picking up, you know, there's an elliptical <laughs> downstairs for a reason.
1: Well, uh Adam, I, I do appreciate you taking some time here on uh on your evening to to chat on the show always a pleasure catching up with you and i hope to be able to do so again in uh in the near future
0: heck yes whenever you want to Uh, love being a part of it thank you brandon
1: all right everyone thank you so much for listening to this episode of after hours a minor league baseball podcast if you are a fan of the orioles and want to follow along with their prospects Please give Adam a follow on Twitter at poll and you can follow the Bowie Bay Sox at Bowie Bay Sox. If you enjoy what you heard on this episode, please leave a five star review. The podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, and Anchor.fm. This was a really fun conversation with one of my former bosses. A lot to take away from it. Whether it has to do with your thoughts on pace of play, or if you're an aspiring broadcaster, or how somebody can face challenges in their early years of their career in management with it, which is something that doesn't necessarily just apply to sports professionals it's one of the more difficult things especially right when you get into the industry to get used to it takes a little while you're going to fail a few times but nobody ever succeeded without failing really i appreciate everybody for listening and catch you next time on another episode of after hours as we continue to dive into the world of minor league baseball maybe minor league basketball at some point since we've touched on that with tim bauman an episode or two ago and have a great morning night evening afternoon whenever you are listening to this take care